great privilege of beginning our revival and what an amazing job that uh, John and Jared already did of beginning to open our hearts to uh, this revival. I pray, my prayer has been uh, since this time last year as I've been praying through the revival that God would stir in us an affection for a deep desire for him and so uh, this morning we do have the great privilege of hearing from uh, brother B.J. Earps. I won't tell you all the stories I have on B.J. because I have a lot uh, but B.J. Um, was the pastor, the youth pastor of the church, my very first church. Uh, I came after him. He was, he's Jenny's sister's uh, youth pastor, and we developed a very, very great friendship. I moved to Florida. He ended up coming down to Florida with me. Um, there, there's a story about his wife uh, in Pat Summit's book. I know we're huge UT fans here. Uh, his wife and her sister are written about in Pat Summit's a biography. Pat Summit looked them over as uh, she was recruiting, and uh, those two girls uh, pretty much lit up the Vols in the first round of the tournament. The Vols still won, so I'll give you all that, but uh, they were meeting in the book. They were meeting in the hallway, and Pat Summit looked at uh, Sarah and Sharon and said, uh, I-, I missed one when I passed you up, and so uh, BJ and I have been great friends. Um, there is a story. I want to tell it so bad. I won't tell it for your sake. Uh, BJ, but we do have the great privilege and honor to hear from BJ this morning. BJ, you can come up. Uh, BJ and his wife are in uh, Huntington, West Virginia, home for for BJ. He was born and raised in West Virginia. Yeah, just take over the pulpit, man. I appreciate that. Uh, there, he was born, and then God placed on his heart was it ten years ago, seven years ago, something like that, to go back to West Virginia, eight years ago to to plant a church there, uh, right outside of Marshall University, and so he's been serving there very faithfully, and so this morning we do have the great privilege and honor to hear from BJ, so BJ, the pulpit is yours, I'm excited to see what God has laid on your heart for us here at Palace Chapel, and welcome to Palace Chapel Baptist Church, let's give BJ a welcome from Palace Chapel. Uh, Todd, appreciate that, Uh, just to clarify, my wife is an identical twin, and her and her sister uh, both were one and two guard at Liberty University in the uh, the late 90s up to 2000, and so their sophomore year, they were the only other undefeated team in the country along with UT, and so they had to meet them in the first round of the NCAA tournament. And my wife's uh, twin still, I think, holds the record for most threes um, hit against UT in that game, but they lost by 50, so it really didn't matter. Uh, at that point, you're just chucking threes because <laughs> you're going down. So... Um, it's great to be here. Uh, thank you all for having me. Uh, in a lot of ways, it's tough to come into a, a context like this without knowing you all and without you all knowing me. Um, there's something to be said for longevity in a church uh, in the way that uh, we get to know each other as family. But in the broader sense, uh, according to Paul in Ephesians, uh, there's one Lord, one faith, one hope, one baptism. And so in that respect, we are family, um, those who are knit together in Christ um, so I consider you brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, and thank you all for allowing me to, to come into your home and be here with you this week. Um, this week, uh, both this morning, tonight, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, uh, as Todd and I prayed concerning the revival here, uh, one of the things that uh, God put on our hearts was to go through the five solas of the Reformation. Now, sola, um, not solo, but sola is a Latin word which means only or alone. And so this, uh, these solas were shorthand uh, prescripts for what distinguished the Protestant church 
from the Roman Catholic Church through the Reformation in the 16th century. Um, so, uh, here, two weeks from tomorrow is October 31st. And do you all know what that day is? October 31st. It is Reformation Day. And Halloween's kind of thrown in there. But on October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther hung the 95 Theses on the door of the Wittenberg Church. He tacked them up there. October 31st, 1517. So, me and my wife have four children. We dress them up like Martin Luther and Zwingli and Calvin and, and uh, have them... I'm kidding, I'm kidding. They don't... They don't get candy that way. Nobody would understand what in the world's going on. Uh, but it's historic because you and I sit as Protestant Christians. Now, that word was the, the Latin protestante, which means that um, those reformers were protesting something. So each one of the, the five shorthand solas, onlys, or alones of the Reformation were um, directly uh, attached to doctrine that the Catholic Church was teaching. So um, those five solas, this morning, tonight, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, we're going to go through. Um, they are sola gratia, which means grace alone, sola fide, faith alone, solus Christus, Christ alone, sola scriptura, scripture alone, and soli deo gloria, to God's glory alone, or to God be the glory alone. And, and, and these are beautiful, deep, treasure troves of our evangelical Protestant Christian faith. The Reformers were not inventing anything. They were showing where Rome had erred, where they had gotten outside of Scripture, where they had introduced other things foreign to the Bible itself. So in that sense, Sola Scriptura is really the starting point. Um, we're going to talk about that uh, tomorrow night. Um, but both this morning and tonight, we're going to talk about um, the order is grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, Scripture alone, God's glory alone. And so that's how we will take it. In fact, um, Luther's first um, theses of the 95 that he hung on the door of the Wittenberg Church was repentance as the way of the Christian life. It actually reads this way, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, Matthew four seventeen, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. That was the very first of the 95 Theses. The entire life of the Christian is one of repentance. And so in that respect, as we sang here this morning, revival begins with us. It begins with us repenting before the Lord. Confessing our sins. Confessing His majesty and His worth and His beauty and His glory. And David said it in Psalm 51, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering, but the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And so in that respect, revival truly begins with a broken and contrite heart before the Lord. This morning, we are looking at Romans chapter 3. In fact, we will stay in Romans chapter 3 for the entirety of these messages over the next few days. I want to begin in Romans 3, and I want to read uh, 21 through 26, but we're going to hone in on Romans 3, 23 and 24 this morning. Now, Martin Luther aforementioned said that Romans 3, 21 to 26 
was the center of the Bible. He said, this is the core. This is the center of the Scriptures. Romans chapter 3, Paul writes to the church in Rome, but now, beginning in verse 21, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There are three things that I'd like to focus on this morning from verse 23 and 24 in particular. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Maybe a very familiar passage for many of you in here this morning. And verse 24, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. A very simple outline if you're taking notes this morning, and it's just threefold. Sin, grace, redemption. So, talking about sin and focusing on that portion of this text this morning, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, one of the things that Paul says here, and it is necessary for us to to focus and highlight this portion, is this key word, it's pontus in the Greek, and it's the word in your English Bible that is all. For all have sinned. Now, what Paul does not say is that few have sinned. He doesn't say some have sinned. He doesn't say many have sinned. He says all have sinned. And so in that respect, it's all. It it means what it says. Every single one of us, every man, every woman, every boy, every girl, every infant that has ever breathed breath into its lungs is a sinner. Now, G.K. Chesterton was a a, a famed uh, British theologian, and he said that the doctrine of original sin is the only empirically proven doctrine. And what he meant by that is you watch people and you can see that they're sinners. I'll never forget, I have four children, a 10-year-old, 8-year-old, 6-year-old, and 3-year-old. Three girls and a boy. The boy is the 3-year-old. And when my 10-year-old now, she would would be mortified if she knew that I was telling you all this story right now. But she's not here. She can't defend herself. So she's, she's fair game. When she was about three years old and we were in the process of potty training, I remember her coming downstairs and she immediately made a beeline into the bathroom and shut the door. And I thought, that, that's strange. And so I, I go and I, I knock on the door. I didn't want to be rude and just barge in, but she was too small to even lock it. But I knocked on the door and said, Riley, what are you, what are you doing? Oh, nothing, nothing. I said, Riley, did you have an accident? No, no. And then I opened up the door and I go in and she had literally dropped her pants and she was trying to flush her underwear down the toilet. (laughs) Now, I didn't train her to do that. I certainly didn't teach her how to lie. I'm pretty sure at that point in her young life I hadn't lied to her. Where in the world did that come from was the thought in my mind. And again, Chesterton says that the doctrine of original sin is empirically proven. You can see it. You You can experience it in the life even of our children. I realize my little girl is a, she's a little liar. She's, she's a sinner and she's literally trying to flush the evidence. And, and, and so, 
for all have sinned. And so often we think, well, gosh, not our, our precious little ones. They, you know, they're born innocent. No. That's unbiblical. It's not true. And Paul here, he hammers this home for us, for all have sinned. Now, and now that word sin is something that we must, we must get our heads around. Uh, we have to consider what sin is. Now, there are common cliche words and expressions that we use in the church that sin is missing the mark. Now, that, that's a literal translation of the Greek word hamartia. Um, uh, it means missing the mark, so you, you kind of think of the bullseye and you're not hitting it. And that's typically the conception that we have of sin. Um, but normally, for most of us, we think that sin is all the bad things that we do. So it's the bad things we say, it's the bad things that we do, it's the bad things that we think. And I would submit to you that that is a partial view of sin. Uh, the, the most succinct definition of sin uh, that I have found in the Scriptures uh, is in 1 John. And in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, John writes this, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. And here it is, a three-word definition for sin. Sin is lawlessness. Now, in the Scriptures, and, and John's going back, he's hearkening back to the Old Testament. In the Scriptures, there, there are two ways to break the law. And this is what the Pharisees in Jesus' time failed to see. And I would submit to you, this is where we in the church so often come up short in our conception of what sin is. Now, Paul has already told us we're all sinners, so what is that? Well, we think of the things that we actively do, but it's, it's half the coin. The other side of, of the coin is the good things that we do not do. So yes, it is right to say that sin is all the bad stuff that we do. It's also all the good stuff that we're not doing. We let ourselves off the hook too quickly in the church when we think comparing ourselves to those outside of the church, I'm not that bad. In fact, I would submit to you that there are at least four major misconceptions that we have concerning sin in the church. I'm talking to Christians. One is that we misconceive that we are basically good. Basically good people with a little bit of bad thrown in. I've yet to meet anybody when asked the question, are you perfect? Anybody. I, I'm sure there might be the, the anomaly out there, but no one when asked the question, are you perfect, have I ever met? Like, absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm the most humble person you'll ever meet in your life. You know, that, the person that answers that way has already shown you that they're not perfect because they're they're now operating in pride. We think that we're basically good with a little bit of bad thrown in. Lifeway Research, Lifeway, right here in Nashville, the research arm of the Southern Baptist Convention, the publishing and research arm of the SBC, just was commissioned by Ligonier Ministries to do a survey of evangelicals. Now that word evangel, the, the evangelical comes from evangel, which is, it's, it's the Greek of good news. It's shorthand for people that believe the gospel that you must believe in Jesus Christ to be saved. Alright, so we're talking about evangelical Christians. They surveyed 3,000. Several years ago, they did a similar survey. This one just came out within the last couple weeks. Two-thirds of those evangelicals surveyed 
admitted that everyone sins a little bit. But they insisted that most people are good by nature. Directly contradicting this passage. That all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jeremiah, that the heart is deceitful above all things. Desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Over half of those surveyed said it's fair for God to exercise wrath against sin. But they waffled about which sins actually deserved wrath. Certainly not theirs. 74% said that the smallest sins don't warrant, warrant eternal damnation. In contrast to Jesus' brother James who said if you've broken one point of the law, you've broken all of it. 60% agreed that everyone eventually goes to heaven. But then half of those also said that the only way to heaven is to believe in Jesus to save. So either those 60% believe that everybody will eventually believe in Jesus, or they had their three-year-old take the survey for them. We think, we misconceive that we are basically good. And into that, Paul speaks and says, all have sinned. And it's not just the bad things you think, say, or do. It's all the good things that you are not living up to. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, said, as my heavenly Father is perfect, you are to be perfect. Secondly, Second misconception is that we think that our sins are not that bad. So even if we don't think that we're basically good with a little bit of bad thrown in, we think within the church that our sins are not that bad. And, and this is what ends up happening in your progress in following Jesus. God sanctifies you. He changes you. He conforms you to the image of His Son. You come under quick conviction when you mess up. You see that you're, you're, you're failing to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. But what happens is you also look in the rearview mirror of the things that you used to do and you realize, I'm not that same person. Amen, amen, amen. That's, that's wonderful. But then the, the little lie starts to slip in that when I do sin, it's not that bad because I can look at everybody else outside of the church and, and I see all the other things that people are doing. I see murder. I see adultery. I see drug addiction. My hometown is riddled. Todd sent me an article several weeks ago. Uh, by March this year in Huntington, West Virginia, we had 700 overdoses from heroin. Um, we had 27 in one day, which is why the national media picked up on our hometown. Within a four-hour time frame, we had 27 overdoses. So it's easy for me to look around and say, well, gosh, I'm not doing that. That's not my life, man. Look at these addicts. Look at these people that are spending their, their, their children's milk and diaper money on drugs to get a, a fix. And, and what the, the subtlety of that is we start to think of our sins as insignificant. As little in comparison. But I, I would submit to you that the, the mark of sin, the heinousness of sin, is not the degree of the offense. It's a little lie versus murder. 
it's, it's a little bit of pleasure in, in the entertainment that I'm, I'm seeking versus drug addiction. The degree of the offense is not what matters. It's the dignity of the offended. What makes sin terrible is not whether it's a little or a big one by our definitions. It's who it's against. So Psalm 51, David who had committed adultery and had had a man killed, prays to God in his repentance against you and you only, have I sinned? Now that ought to make us, for those that are familiar with Psalm 51, that ought to make your mind jump in in alertness to say, really? You sinned against You sinned against Bathsheba? You sinned against your kingdom? You sinned against your people? You sinned against her husband? You sinned against everybody. And David rightly knew what you and I forget often is that what makes sin sin is who it's against. And it's always first vertical before it's ever horizontal. And so what makes sin so bad is the dignity of the one offended. And the one offended is holy and righteous. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the Creator of the whole universe. He is the God who holds everything together by the word of His breath. Hebrews 1. If God stops speaking your life into existence, you're done. And if He stops speaking this world into existence, it ends. And it's Him to whom we sin against. Our sins are terrible. As small and as insignificant as you think they are because of who they're against. It's the dignity of the one offended. Third misconception is that we're saved by grace. We'll acknowledge, okay, we're bad to the core. And and that badness, no matter how little I think it is, is deep because of who I have sinned against. I'll give you all of that. And, And without God's grace saving me, I would not be saved. But now that He saved me, I'm living by works. So I I don't need Jesus as much today as I did 10 years ago when I became a Christian or 20 years ago when I confessed Christ. And this is a misconception about sin. You are as much in need of Jesus today and His grace covering you as you were 5 years ago or 10 years ago or 15 years ago. That we are saved by grace and we live by grace. This is exactly what Paul is speaking to the church um, when he writes to uh, the Galatian church in Galatia chapter 3. And he says this, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this, did you receive the Spirit by works? Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does He who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? If you began by the Spirit, why would you think that you continue on in any other way? If God has saved you by grace, He is sanctifying you by grace. And the last misconception concerning sin is that that we think 
that our sin is primarily, again, against others. That, that the things that we have done is first and foremost about other people, but it's always, again, about God. And so this is where we, we in the church have these operative misconceptions concerning what Paul is telling us is true of us, that we have sinned. We have missed the mark and we haven't lived up. We've actively done and we've passively not done. And so therefore, we fall short of the glory of God. Now we'll come back to the glory of God on Wednesday or we'll look forward to that. The Soli Deo Gloria. But for right now, uh, it's God's glory that's at stake. And we've, we've missed it. For all have sinned and fall short of God's glory for which we were created. And so this is our status. This is the status of every person in this room this morning. Sinners in need of a Savior. And so the second word that we'll focus on then is grace. Verse 24, and are justified by His grace as a gift. Now this word justification is where Rome and the Reformers and us today are radically different. This is a major point of division between the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. This word, justification, is a, is a Greek word, dikaiosune. And dikaiosune means to declare righteous. But in the Latin, from which the Reformers and the Roman Catholic Church read, the word was justificare. And in, in the Latin, justificare means to make righteous. But there's a big difference in declaring righteous and making righteous. And those two things are, are separated by a great divide. Making righteous and declaring righteous are two different. And, and so Luther and the reformers after him understood that to declare righteous is a forensic term. It's not that you are righteous. It's not that you are right. Psalm 130. The psalmist says, If you, O Lord, should count our sins, who could stand before you? If God were to take a ledger and, and mark all of your sins, the things that you did or didn't do today, before you ever even got here, none of us could stand before Him. If you, O Lord, should count our iniquities, who could stand? And so we are guilty before a holy and a righteous God. So therefore... The greatest need for us in standing before the Lord is that we would be righteous, but we're not. Which is the necessity of Christ's righteousness. Solus Christus. And that's coming. So our righteousness is an external or, or a forensic righteousness whereby God declares us right. This is why Rome called the doctrine of justification by faith alone legal fiction. It's made up. It can't be. And here, Paul is saying that we are declared right. We are justified. God says, you are guilty, but I tell you now before me, right. And that's the pronouncement. That's the legal forensic pronouncement is right. You are right. You can stand before me. And that comes by His grace as a gift. Not by your works. Not by anything you have done, could do, or will do. But only by His grace as a gift. Grace. Unmerited, undeserved favor. And this is what God does to, 
to have us stand before Him who are guilty sinners. Is He takes Jesus' perfection, Jesus' righteousness, Jesus' perfect completion and fulfillment of the law, and He credits that to us. So all that we are as sinners goes on to Jesus and all that Jesus is as perfection is counted toward us. And God said, you are right. And that by grace. Uh, Again, where in the church we struggle to, to grasp this is that this is so radically different than any realm of your life that you experience apart from Christianity. It's so radically different than every other world religion. And and that's the difference. The difference between Christianity and every other world religion is the difference between do and done. What makes the good news is it's, it's good news completed. And so world religions spell salvation, D-O. Whether it's the five pillars of Islam, or the release of consciousness in Buddhism, or simply the kind of secular rationalism that says, um, if you want to be saved, then you must work for it. And that, that salvation project could be one of many things. You want to be saved from your loneliness? So work hard to, to get and keep relationships. You want to be saved from poverty? Work hard to make sure that you're successful in business and that your 401k is strong. You want to be successful? Work for it. You want to be saved. And we have all these little self-salvation projects. And and that's essentially world religion reduced down to a a single word, do. But in Christianity, God spells it done. It's, It's been done for you. And so I give you your righteousness, your justification by grace as a gift. And, and we subtly fall into thinking it's something that we've done. Now this is what radically makes us Protestant Christians is believing that salvation is by grace alone. And yet there's this subtlety that, that is in our flesh. Luther taught that the default position of all of us is works righteousness. Religion at its core. Several years ago I was cutting grass and, um, and, and one of the lawns that I was cutting had a, an in-ground pool. Um, in the backyard, and my, my two daughters at that time, the oldest two, um, who are now 10 and 8 at the time, this was uh, three years ago, so they would have been 7 and 5, wanted to go with me. And so I said, you can go with me. It was probably a mistake, probably shouldn't have taken them, but when we got into the backyard, I told them stay away from the pool. They had their little poly pockets with them in a travel case. And so um, we put the poly pockets on the, the edge as far away from the pool as I could get, and said, you guys stay here and play, and then I'm cutting the grass. And I'm heads on the swivel, I'm constantly turning, constantly watching. And, and I noticed that they kept creeping closer and closer. Now, the whole time, I was within arm's length, like me to these guys. And, and I, I kept watching, and it was almost like a sociological experiment in my own mind. I'm like, are they going to obey Daddy? Are they going to stay away from the pool? But they kept creeping closer and closer and closer. And, and my daughter, Adeline, at one point, um, she was leaning over looking and she dropped one of her little Polly Pockets into the water. And I watched her and it was almost like Tom stopped and I, I saw her leaning out to get that thing. And sure enough, and she's five and she hadn't learned to swim at that point. And she reaches out to try to get it and she goes in. 
Now immediately, I was there in a split second. And, and she was probably in the water no more than a couple seconds before I yanked her out. You have been justified by grace as a gift. Not by works, as Paul will say, so that no one can boast. But what ends up happening in the church, we, we tarnish grace. We think that, yes, God saved me, but I'm a contributor to that. That would have been the equivalent of me running up to the edge of the pool and me reaching down toward my daughter Adeline and yelling at her, Reach up! Reach up! My hand's right here! Grab it! Grab it! If you don't grab it, you won't be saved. Grab it! That is not grace. Grace is me running up to the edge of the pool, reaching down and grabbing her when she's sinking, when she's dying, when she's drowning, and jerking her up out of the pool. That's grace. And in your sins, you were dead. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, dead in your trespasses and sins. And God didn't say, man, make yourself alive. Breathe. Reach out. Because you never could and you never would. This is exactly what Paul has previously said in Romans chapter 3. No one is righteous. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. And if you could arguably say that the greatest good you could ever do is choosing God, you would never do that. Because you can't. This is why Jesus says, in this is love. Not that you chose me, but that I chose you. You didn't choose me. And so grace, grace is God's free, unmerited, undeserved love. And if you ask yourself, why would He do this? He does it because He does it. He does it because He does it. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 and following, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all people. But catch this. It is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers. God loves you because He loves you. Grace, grace, God's grace. Last word, redemption. So, we are sinners in need of a Savior. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, there are various ways to talk about salvation in the Scripture. Justification, um, redemption, adoption, reconciliation. There are lots of ways that uh, the New Testament writers get after describing what we have in Christ and Him alone. And redemption is a a term that elicits the idea of a payment. That's the, the key thing to understand here concerning redemption. To redeem something is to buy something back. So through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now what is significant concerning redemption is this idea of what was paid. Now who was paid is a significant question. But what was paid 
is what Paul is getting after. Which is why he'll go on to say, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. It was the death of Christ that was necessary to redeem. But the question of who was paid is not insignificant. Now, it's not primary, it's not the focal point for Paul here, but it's not insignificant. And so when we talk about salvation, and, and we say, I'm saved, the question then is, beg, saved from what? Saved from what? Saved from hell? Absolutely. Saved from your sins? Certainly. But ultimately, what are you saved from? Paul understood, along with Christ, that you are saved from God's wrath. Because of what you deserve for your sin. You're saved from His wrath. Most of the Christians that I run into conceive of hell as being the domain of Satan and heaven being the domain of God. And that is, that's a misconception. Maybe we were taught it when we were young or we even heard it preached. But God is the Creator of all things, is He not? Creation ex nihilo, from nothing. God created everything. And when we read the Scriptures and when we understand Revelation, Satan himself is going to be vanquished, condemned, damned to hell. He's not the Lord over hell. He will suffer the wrath of God in hell. God is in control. The difference between heaven and hell is not the difference between the people who are in the presence of God versus those who are not. The difference is between the people who are in the presence of God with a mediator versus those who are in the presence of God without a mediator. It's the presence of God in His love and His grace that makes heaven heaven. And what makes hell hell is that the full wrath of God is poured out for eternity on those who have rebelled against Him. Forever under the wrath and condemnation of a holy God. Hell exists because God is holy and because He exists. We are saved from the wrath of God. Romans 5, while we were weak, at the right time, this is verse 6, Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for the righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. We are saved by Him, we are saved for Him, and we are saved from Him. And this is what Jesus did in pouring out His life for us. Now, I, I want to close this way, and there's so much more that we could say this morning. Sin, grace, and redemption. If you're a Christian here, Luther taught that we are two things and always two things in this life. And he used this Latin expression, simul utus et peccator, that we are simultaneously just 
and sinners. Saints and sinners. And you're, you're both things. Now what happens for so many of us in, in, the, in the Christian church, I'm, I'm directly addressing you who call yourself Christian this morning, is that we can fall off on one side or the other. Simultaneously justified, saint, et peccator, and sinner. And when you fall off on the side of saint, you start to think of yourself more highly than you ought, which Paul will go on later on in Romans to say, don't do that. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. You understand that God has saved you. That He has set you apart. That He has sanctified you in Jesus Christ. That He is making you in practice what you are in reality before Him, which is right, justified. And so when you fall off on that side, you, you tend to forget what you were. And, and I would pray this morning that your prayer would be, God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Give me a, a taste continually of what you have saved me from. Your wrath and hell and my sins and the life that I was living. You breathed life into my lungs. You awoke me. You, you made me alive to you. You changed my heart. You sought me when a stranger, wandering from your fold. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. And by your grace, you're keeping me. And so, so to you who, who err on this side, remember what you were that Jesus saved you from. And for those who fall off on the other side, the, the sinner side, understand that you will never be to the Lord more than what you are right now, which is beloved. No, no more good that you can do in this life will warrant for you or earn from God anything more than what you already have in Jesus. And when God looks at you, He looks through His Jesus glasses and He says, you are my beloved. I love you. You are precious and you are valuable to me. Because I have, I have saved you, I've redeemed you, I've poured my Spirit into you. And I love you because I love you. You're my child, you're precious. And, and you need to hear that word this morning. Now to those who are not believers here, uh, I want to address quickly two kinds of unbelief. There's the kind of unbelief that exists in the church. You read Matthew chapter 13, the wheat and the tares grow up together. And that's a parable about believers and unbelievers in the church. And so there are two kinds of unbelief. One is the unbelief that's characteristic of people in the church. This is the kind of unbelief that Jesus addressed with the Pharisees. You worship me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. This is the kind of unbelief that is, it, it is cancerous on the body of Christ and in the kingdom of God. Because it looks so much like belief. It says all the right things, it does all the right things, and, and there is a world of difference in the heart. To those who do not believe in this kind of way, what you need to repent of is your good works. You need to repent of the good works that you do that you think earns you anything from the Lord. This is what Isaiah said in Isaiah 64. Your righteousness is filth. It is as filthy rags 
to the Lord. And you need to repent of your self-righteousness. Even the good that you do is a gift from the Lord. Your life is lived by grace. And so that's one kind of unbelief. The other kind of unbelief is the kind that is, is outside of the church that says this can't be. I, I, in everything, whether it's school or sports or my, my college education or my career or my boss or even my spouse, I'm trying to live up to something. And you're telling me that God is the only person in the world that says you can't live up and so it requires me. That, that can't be. And so there's that kind of disbelief. Gosh, if there was a God, then surely He would require of me all that I can do to try to get into His favor. And I would submit to you that that is not gospel. That is not good news. And so the call of God this morning is for you to believe. To believe that nothing in my hands I bring Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to Thee for dress. Helpless look to Thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. And for that kind of unbelief this morning, what God asks of you is to trust Him. Is to say, wash me, cleanse me, save me. C.S. Lewis says, the Christian says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that doesn't prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. If that's so, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or to be unthankful for earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of a copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others to do the same. If I find in myself that desire for which nothing in this world can satisfy, that someone would love me and accept me despite me, it may mean that I was made for another world. And you who are, are not Christians in this room this morning, if you find in yourself that desire for someone to say, I love you, in spite of you, I love you, and I accept you, and you are valuable, and you are worthy, then it may mean that you were not created for this world. And I would implore you, pray that you would, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and so be saved. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank You for Your Word this morning. And I ask that You would wash us in it.
Holy Spirit, it is You who are given the, the task of convicting the world of sin and judgment and righteousness. And so conviction itself comes from You. So I ask You to, to pull off blinders in our, own lie, in our own eyes where we have been deceived in thinking that there's anything in us by which You have found worthy of saying, saving. Thinking of Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher that said, God must have loved me before I was born because there was nothing to love in me after that. God, I, I, I do ask that You would simply bring us under conviction in this place, that we would repent both of the sins that we've committed and the things that we've thought have deserved or earned anything before Your eyes. Please, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.